Hello, welcome to the Learning Museum podcast. My name is Rebecca and I work for Heritage and Culture Warwickshire. Hi, I'm Penelope. I work for Wolverhampton Arts and Culture. We are the Group for Education in Museums West Midlands reps. What's in your learning cupboard this week, Penelope? So, uh, coming out of my learning cupboard are Bangra Pirates with sharks and uh, pretty good Bangra dance moves and uh, pirate-related things. Uh, how come? So um, it was uh, an event we had at one of the libraries in Wolverhampton and um, there's this really fantastic performer called Sohan. Highly recommended. Uh, we've got um, stories about the Great Fire of Warwick. Um, it was a great fire for Warwick because it destroyed quite a lot of Warwick but uh, we've been talking about it uh, with our Recollections Calf which is our dementia cafe that we have once a month at the Market Hall Museum, so we've been learning about that. Wow, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting archive collection actually that you get the information from. When I say interesting, it's probably quite dull to read because it's all about insurance claims, but you can pull out the interesting stories and make <laughs> it sound quite interesting. So, for example, <laughs> there's a story about a doctor who could see the fire getting closer and closer to his house, so he convinced people to pull down his neighbour's house as a fire break to save his own house. But then the fire wow. never got that far. Oh, that time's for the neighbour. So yeah, he had to pay for his neighbour's house to be rebuilt. Which I think is fair enough. Yeah, yeah, actually. Yeah. Yeah. The story's about, yeah, so they, they opened up the jail that was in the centre of town where the fire was. Uh, some people absconded and took that opportunity. Uh, but other of the prisoners, they stayed and tried to help put the fire out. Did yeah. they get let out early? I'm not sure. Mm. Don't know. Can I say that they did? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so this time we're talking to Sarah Fellow. She's the Heritage Engagement Manager at Dudley Canal and Tunnel Trust. So, hello, Sarah. Hello. Hi. Uh, so, first thing we'd love you to tell us is a fascinating fact about the Dudley Canal and Tunnel. Well, the Dudley Canal Tunnel is the second longest navigable canal tunnel in the whole of the UK. We have um, limestone mines, which is the whole reason it exists. Um, caverns uh, formed by people taking the limestone out. Um, and there's a few open basins in there as well. So uh, the, one of the sections you go into, it's called Castlemore Basin. Um, and you've been underground for a while and suddenly you come out into this beautiful open air section. You can see the sky and the, the sunshine when it's a nice day. Um, and the, uh, the greenery, the ivy's all hanging down the, the walls. And it's just like being in another world. It's absolutely magical. It's really cool. <laughs> Why do you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today? So I've been working in um, the heritage sector in education for over 10 years now. Um, I started off doing uh, a master's degree in uh, heritage management from the Ironbridge Institute, University of Birmingham. Um, and then from there I worked for a few years at Avoncroft Museum in Bromsgrove uh, doing family learning work. Uh, from there I went to Tembury Wells, a little town in uh, Worcestershire, uh, working at the Regal, which is an Art Deco cinema, um, mm. looking at a restoration project that they had there and doing a lot of engagement and learning work. Um, I've spent some time at uh, Think Tank in Birmingham and their education team. Um, and now I'm here at Dudley Canal and Tunnel Trust, uh, where I look after every sort of learning and engagement. So schools, family events, um, digital projects, marketing, social media. You've really collected the set of, not, not just heritage, <laughs> no. you do science, you all do the art, like, yeah. all the things. All the things. Yeah. So tell us a bit about um, 
yeah, a bit more about your current role. About my role or about here? Let's start with here, this place. So we're sat outside at the moment, right next to the canal, actually. It's quite a nice day. It is a lovely day today, yeah. It's a good day to be outside. So Diddley Canal and Tunnel Trust uh, first formed back in the uh, sort of 50s and 60s. Um, and it's sort of against the, the backdrop of... Um, at the time, people were less interested in the canals. They'd stopped being used for commercial traffic and uh, were just being left to rot, basically, um, and decay. There, there was not much of an interest on part of uh, the government of the time, because at the time they were responsible for the waterways, uh, to keep them looked after because they weren't viable for commercial reasons. Um, and so lots of different areas of the canal were just sort of being um, abandoned and uh, our little stretch of canal around here, particularly the Dudley Tunnel, was one of those areas that people just weren't interested in anymore. But there were a group of local teenagers who used to use the tunnels. They'd go in on dinghies and go and explore them and uh, have parties in the caverns and things like that. So it's not quite health and safety for today's audience, but um, at the time it was cool. Um, and they didn't like the fact that the, the tunnel was being threatened with closure. And so they organised, they got together uh, in groups and they organised um, protest cruises to say you can't shut our, our tunnel down. Um, in response to that, the British Transport Commission who looked after the waterways they um, put a board across the outside of the tunnel entrance and said it's unsafe you can't go in there we've closed it so there were a few local protest groups at the time and uh, they got together and basically decided oh, we don't believe you we're going to go find out for ourselves so they tore the boards off the entrance to the tunnel and uh, headed in on their little dinghies with their you know, bicycle headlamps on the front. <laughs> where, where, where was this, did you say? In the 60s. In the, of course, it was in the 60s. Of course, it was in the yeah. 60s, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That That's exactly when this would happen. Um, and went all the way through the full length of the tunnel and they found no rock falls, they found no uh, gas leaks or dragons or anything else they'd been told was hiding <laughs> underground. And so they said, no, there is nothing wrong with it. We, we want to keep it open. And they came to an agreement with um, the British Transport Commission um, because they said, uh, well, that's fine. You can keep the tunnel open. But um, unfortunately, there's a railway, which was the old Wolverhampton Dudley line, Bristol line, um, that runs right across the tunnel entrance. And the bridge that's up there, it needs strengthening. And the cheapest way to do it is just to build a massive embankment. Unfortunately, that's going to go over the top front of the tunnel. Sorry about that. So the campaigners uh, said, well, if we can raise the money to re-strengthen the bridge in another way, can we do that? They said yes you can so they started um, trying to raise money by taking trips through and doing various other fundraising activities um, and it wasn't looking good because uh, the target that they'd been set was so high and they didn't think they were going to make it and then a guy called Dr Beeching came along and decided that this was a branch line that nobody needed anymore <laughs> and closed the railway. Yes, Dr Beeching. <laughs> Did yeah. something good. I know. So here in Dudley, you'll find the only people who think Dr Beeching was a great man who did wonderful <laughs> things. Um, but yes, yeah, so because the, the railway was no longer a threat, um, the tunnel was saved, basically, and they could uh, all of that money they'd been raising to uh, repair the bridge, they could use for tunnel restoration. After a while, they started running uh, lots of passenger trips into the, the tunnel, and to the point where they decided they needed to establish a company to do that. Um, so Dudley Canal Trust Trips was born. Um, we have uh, some of the uh, very few, and we certainly had the first electrically powered passenger narrowboat in the UK if not the world 
and uh, our fleet today is mostly still electric boats um, because when you go into the tunnels obviously there's restricted ventilation so you don't want a diesel boat because that's not yes. going to do your lungs any good. Not nice for the school children. No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, so, yeah, it, we're mostly electric boats still. And then we operated for many years as two sheds on the side of the canal, one selling tickets and the other selling tea and polystyrene cups, um, until we had our uh, portal building, which was a joint project, a £3 million project, from the National Lottery, um, the Heritage Lottery Fund, European Regional Development Fund, Biffer Award and lots of other smaller funders as well um, who built us this lovely new building and if, if you've been to us you'll have seen it if not come and visit us and see it it's really nice um, that has a really nice outside restaurant there's an exhibition gallery gift shop um, a learning room and a function room space which is kind of dual purpose uh, offices I mean if you ask the staff though we're mostly interested in the fact that it for the first time we had inside toilets it's um, a lovely building and lo- like really nice setting Especially on day like today, where everyone sat up there having their sunshiny days. Yeah. Yes, we do cook breakfast in the mornings. They are really, really good. <laughs> Huge, which is nice. And yeah, on a day like today, you just want to be sat on the balcony with a cup of tea, scones, ice cream. Should we just go and do that now? Let's just do that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So thanks for listening. The end. We're off to find the cake. So you're the engagement manager. I am, yeah. Um, Do you spend most of your time doing? I'm responsible for all the learning and engagement work that we do. So um, it depends a lot on the time of year as to what I'm doing the majority of my work with. So in the school holidays, we spend a lot of time doing family events. In uh, term time, we have a lot of school visits, mostly primary, but some secondary college even university students uh, particularly like leisure and tourism and things like that we have very unique geology here as well so uh, we get people who are interested in um, geology who'll come um, to look at the the fossils the limestone here is from the Silurian period which is 428 million years old um, and we have some fossils uh, in our limestone beds which are the same ones that outcrop at Wren's Nest down the road um, which you can't find anywhere else in the world people that come to visit just to see the geology then yes yeah um they tend to be university type people or academics or that kind of thing can you see any of the fossils in situ in the tunnel is it all brick faced yeah so the tunnel um has some brick line sections but also some open rock of different types there's some uh, very limestoney some are more shale uh, and down the full length of the tunnel, you go through like volcanic rocks and things as well. Um, but uh, where, where there's a brick section, that's basically where the rock was less strong, mm. where it was weaker, and it needs the support of the brick arch. So that's why the brick's in that section. Yeah. So if you're going through a section where you can see the exposed rock, that's strong rock. It's a good bit of tunnel to be in. Yeah. Very strong. Yeah. The rest, <laughs> the rest. Well, the rest's fine because it's being held up by brick. Let through then, get through quick. Yeah, no, you're all right. You're right. We do uh, every morning when we open up the tunnels. We have to do a, a what we call a mine check, and everything is checked over. All of the brickwork every single day. So um, it's one of the safest mines you'll ever go in. Like, how many jobs do you get to do a mine check in the day? <laughs> yeah. So, what are you working on at the moment, Sarah? Uh, so I'm, I'm working on lots of projects at the moment. I'm always uh, we're always trying out new stuff. So we have a project called Virtual Worlds, um, which is for 15 to 18 year olds ish. I mean we're quite flexible really. Uh, which is all about doing uh, filming work, telling stories through film um, that the young people decide 
that it wants to tell. So we've done 360 filming, learnt to film VR, um, which was a what I call a vertical learning curve. Um, so that was fun. At the moment, they're working on a project which they are calling a documentary. The first video is going to be called The Introduction. I can feel there's a strong pun going on. There is. <laughs> there is, yeah. It's because everybody involved is quackers. Um. Oh, yeah, on it. <laughs> on it. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, that's... Um, we've, we've been running Virtual Worlds as, like, a permanent programme for about six months now. Um, the pilot, which uh, involved the VR and creating a video of Sagata, which is one of our working boats... And they were in the cabin telling a story about uh, the people who used to live in the working boats. We did that last year and that, that piece of work is finished. That's on YouTube. It's called Ripples in Time. So yeah, we've been working on our, on our documentary more recently, um, which includes really odd tasks like trying to figure out how to mount a 360 camera on the back of a plastic decoy duck. That's not your everyday. It, no. <laughs> Um, it keeps us on our toes. It's you know, it's it's never boring. <laughs> How did you recruit the young people to that project? So for that project, we posted on uh, Facebook basically, just saying we're doing a thing. It's going to involve cake and digital technology, and it's free. And uh, we had people get in touch with us and say, "Oh yeah, my son, daughter, whoever would would like to come along." And that's basically been the bulk of the people who've come along. Um, I, we've probably worked with about 20 or so different young people over the course of the pilot and the uh, version that we're in now. The group on a week-to-week, -week, well, I say week-to-week, -week, we meet once a month, uh, basis is probably like half a dozen. Um, and that's about right for the amount of work um, that, that we're doing. I think any more than that, you know, mm. might get a bit chaotic. Is that just supported by you? It is now, yeah. So the pilot project was uh, supported by a £3,000 grant from Arts Connect through their digital bursary scheme, uh, which was great because it allowed us to buy all of the technical equipment that we wouldn't have been able to meet the cost of out of our regular budgets, things like the 360 cameras. It also allowed us to pay for a technology expert um, <laughs> to come in. Um, his name was Graham, he's lovely. Uh, to come in and talk to us about how you make VR film you know what are the challenges of filming in 360 how do you edit 360 films it's, it's quite different um all the things that sort of they needed to think about um and to teach not only us but also the young people so that that, that we're kind of cross-skilled in, in that that regard um so the grant allowed us to do all of that and now the the duck project mm. <laughs> virtual worlds as a, as a permanent program um that's out of our core programming um, budget now and do they have an idea what they want to do after the documentary? They've got quite a list of duck-related videos they want to film. Um, so they want to tell the story of uh, ducks in lots of different ways. Um, they want to talk about uh, waterways pollution and, you know, why that's a bad thing for ducks. But, I mean, also everybody else, obviously. Yeah. Um, plastic pollution. Uh, they wanted to do a video about feeding ducks mm -hmm. and why you shouldn't feed them bread because it's bad for them. Um, why ducks are important because everybody loves a duck and you know you, you want to save a duck because ducks are just nice but you know ducks are an important part of the waterways ecosystem as well and not many people think about that so mm. they wanted to do a video about that uh, they wanted to do a whole series on like the friends of the ducks uh, the other waterways wildlife that you find um, we're hoping uh, we've, we've done a bit of work with the wildlife trust 
and uh, we're hoping to be able to work with them more so that because uh, they have some footage of uh, animals that they've collected over time that can be used in the young people's films and also to help us find like where do we find a nesting duck you know they know the answers to that kind of thing yeah, us not so much mm. <laughs> um so yeah working in partnership with them so they've gone down quite an environmental track they you. have yeah and that's been entirely driven by them like we didn't lead them in any way they chose what they wanted to film about it seems like you've managed to do them all with you or other <laughs> members of staff learning how to use equipment and how to do the editing and stuff if you were going to do it all again, would you do it the same way? That's a great question. Um, I think we were lucky to receive a couple of grants which provided us with some seed funding to have a go at um, projects that perhaps otherwise you'd have just kept thinking, that's a nice thing I'd like to try one day. And receiving grant funding really focuses your mind, like, you have to do this now, somebody yeah. gave me some money to do it. Um, so our first digital project uh, was called Hidden Histories and that was about uh, static virtual reality photospheres with, with viewers um, and integrating that into storytelling that was done live by a person with handling objects. So it wasn't just a virtual project, it was about kind of bringing digital into um, a, a project that included other things as well. And the timescale for that was very short from the time we'd been told we'd uh, got the grant to when we had to have completed all the activity was under three months. And so I think there were prob there's probably a lot there where we just went, oh, we'll have a go, it'll be fine. <laughs> because we didn't have the time to stop and think, well, we could do X, Y or Z or what if yeah. we did this instead? Um, so I suspect that if, if you were going at it without that kind of time constraint, you would probably approach it differently um, because... Uh, you'd you'd probably take a lot more time uh, to consider you you know what you were doing and how you were doing it. Um, having said that, I sort of feel like the run at it and do it quickly approach probably works quite well for something that you don't know an awful lot about. <laughs> we yeah. we knew very little about digital technologies when we started any of this, um, and so we also didn't know what we didn't know, if you know what I mean. Um, we weren't aware of the areas of our own ignorance and uh, so we were just less scared of what might happen if it didn't work I think um, and I was pleasantly surprised all the way through how much easier everything was than I thought it was going to be um, particularly the photospheres that we did in the Hidden Histories project it's so simple I can teach anybody else to do it in under five minutes it's that, it's that easy I think there's just this idea about digital work that it must be expensive, time-consuming and complicated. And our projects have sort of proved to us that none of that's true. Or, I mean, it could be, but it doesn't have to be, you know. Yeah. And doing things that are... Um, with that kind of have-a-go attitude, with a small budget that gives you the confidence to, to try it, um, can then give you the confidence to develop into something that's more complicated and more involved afterwards. Um, and the more you embed digital work into your just general programming, the more it becomes a part of just what you do. I mean, it's, it's subtly changed a lot of um, things like our marketing, you know, our social media conversations and, and posts and things that we, the content we create for online. Um, has changed as a result of the things that we've learned through the digital engagement projects that we've done. Have you found that using digital as in has enhanced engagement? Yeah, definitely. I think it's been it's been the opportunity to present a different type of content to people, and whether that's 
online or in person. So the the hidden histories thing that we did, everything was face to face. Um, we still take out the um, the headsets with the, some of the content we uh, created for hidden histories when we go out and do outreach places. So we stood around at Merry Hill chatting to people, um, and it's amazing that people who go. Uh, canals <laughs> um, we'll go ooh virtual reality that sounds a bit <laughs> exciting so it, it sort of engages a different type of person or a person with a different type of interest which is great um, it's also been wonderful for uh, getting people to see more of what we do so um, when you talk about tunnels I think most people imagine it's a two mile long uh, sort of tube lined with bricks and mm. that's it and that's all you see um, and actually being able to have the virtual reality um, viewers means that we can show them, well, actually, this is a cavern. This is a basin. These are the kind of environments you'll see underground here. Um, and the reaction is always, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> it's never what people expect to see. Um, so it helps us get over that hurdle of trying to explain the unexplainable, mm. which is, it is more than a tunnel, I promise. <laughs> It's a mine. Yeah, there's a mine and a, and a cavern and a, and a couple of basins. Oh, what? Very exciting. A boat arriving. The boat is just arriving yeah. now. Yeah, if you can hear the noise, that's, yeah. that's the boat coming back. Even um, a silent, quiet for an electric boat. Yes. Yeah, yeah they are quite quiet because they're electric. I was going to ask, the young people that you're working with on the digital projects. Yes. The ripples in time. Do you see them coming back? outside of that project and engaging with the trust? I think it's made a big difference to how they perceive us, definitely. Um, when we first met and we asked questions in our first sessions about, you know, who are we? What do you think we are? What stories do we tell that you're interested in? And uh, th there were a lot of blank faces and we don't really know anything about you. My mum said there was cake. You know, that kind of, I don't know why I'm here, um, sort of approach. And it's interesting listening to them in sessions now when they're chatting about things because they have, across sort of the year and a bit we've been doing it, formed um, deep personal opinions about stuff. Like, you can't do that because, you know, there's this other thing that you have to think about, um, particularly with the canals and as a home for wildlife they're very passionate about living things but, but also the sort of social history of it mm. um, the people who lived and worked on the, on the waterways yeah hearing the way they talk about us now and they'll say that they've spoken to their friends about us mm. um, you just get the feeling it's, it's sort of permeating into their lives a bit more which is really nice um, and I think they would be much more likely to um, come and do something else with us you know whether that's bring their family on a boat trip um and that's a long way from i'm just here for the cake so so the group size is quite steady um obviously people drop off because they go on to other things you, but you're getting regular recruits to keep it yeah and it's been mostly through other people that the young people know where they've gone oh my friend likes this can i come mm. you know which again is a nice thing because it means that they must be enjoying themselves if they're recommending it to their friends to come and be a part of it. Um, I, the young people themselves are hoping that once they release their introduction video, um, which has a little section in about who they are and why, what Virtual Worlds is and why they're doing it, um, which they chose to put in, we didn't tell them to. They're hoping that that might encourage some other people to come along and join in too. They want the group to get bigger, they want to meet new people and have more people involved, which is really nice as well. 
when they come they're here for a couple of hours yeah half four to half six which is about right when we did the pilot project we experimented with different length sessions we had some short ones that were about an hour some longer ones that were like three three and a half hours mm. um, and actually they found it quite difficult to stay focused for more than about two hours so we have a two-hour session with a short kind of 10 minute uh, biscuit and squash break in the middle <laughs> um, and that seems to be about right that's about as much as they want to be focused on one thing for yeah it works quite nicely it's quite time intensive from the point of view of the staff because it's happening outside of our core hours Mm. because you can't run it in the daytime because they're you know at school college wherever so it does mean that again because they're not accompanied by the parents that's more staffing on our part to make sure that we're adequately uh, covered for people that's why we only do it once a month because of the staffing time okay we relaunched virtual worlds in april which was not the best time of year to have done that. In terms of things you learn to do differently, don't launch it in April. Bad time to launch it. Don't do that. That's not good. <laughs> we were thinking about it from a practical point of view, that if we were going to be doing filming um, and we were doing once a month, then if they came in April and May to do their planning, we'd be filming in June, July, August. Mm. So that yeah. seemed to make sense, but we'd kind of forgotten that actually loads of them wouldn't come in April, May, or some of them didn't come in June because then they went on holiday because they just finished. Do you have many links with people who worked on the canal or lived on the canal? Are there any groups that come along? Some of our trustees or volunteers have lived on working boats or worked canal boats in the past, which is nice. Um, But it's very much a dying art. There's not many people who work, especially live and work, on um, transporting canal boats anymore because although there are still a few of them around there's really not many at all that that kind of died out in the 60s so it tends to be oh my relative did this rather than they did this there's an ever dwindling number of people who do that we have um, a project called canal memories and every time we come across anybody who has any links to the canal remembers anything (laughs) that's all history but it's also recorded history photographs basically anything it's quite an informal um, memories collection yeah, I think project. my granddad, great granddad, like Daniel Daniel at some point. I'll give you a form later, you can write that down. <laughs> I'll pass I'm that on to my sure nan that one time. <laughs> she could probably tell you more about her own father than I. Oh, but yeah, sure it's amazing it. how many people around here have links to the canal yeah. in their history. Um, my parents were doing their family tree stuff recently, and um, they discovered that in their, uh, I think it's on my dad's side, and there was somebody in there, Dad said, it says he was a puddler. What on earth is a puddler? Mm. And I was like, oh, well, that's puddling clay. So when you build a canal, you have to make it waterproof. Otherwise, it's not a canal for very long. <laughs> it just becomes a deep trench. Um, so uh, you waterproof the sides and mainly the base by using clay. And uh, they call it puddling clay to puddle the bottom of the canal. So, yeah, one of my ancestors was a puddler. Wow, yeah. you never would have known that. No, exactly, yeah, because he would have said, what's a puddler? And I would have gone, I don't know, does he like splashing? <laughs> what's that? I don't know. It's not a job you get these days. Yeah, so my mum's cousin's done our family history for the backcountry family, and it's, it's just littered with all of that. Brickmakers yeah. as yes. well. Yes, lots of brickmakers. Brickmakers in the family. Yeah. Yeah. All of the bricks in our tunnel are all handmade, and that's, I, I think they estimated it something like two million bricks in the full length of the tunnel, because the, the full tunnel's nearly two miles long. So um, that's a lot of handmade bricks. Yeah. Um, often made by the wives and children of the miners. Uh, so thank you very much, Sarah. That's not a problem. Thank you for asking me.
been, been lovely to chat and find out more about documentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to let us know um, when it's done, everyone can come and watch it. Are you going to put it on YouTube? Yeah, so it'll be shared on YouTube and Facebook and probably Instagram and anywhere else that the young people tell me is where cool young people share videos these days. Thanks for listening to the Museum Learning Cupboard podcast. Rebecca and I are area representatives for the Group for Education in Museums, or GEM in the West Midlands. GEM is for everyone interested in learning through museums and heritage. If you'd like to find out more about GEM or becoming a member, please visit the website at gem.org.uk. Thank you.